Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website or Bite Into It's Facebook or Twitter accounts. Welcome to Bite Into It, another great Wednesday evening of tech and computing talk, we hope, for your listening pleasure. Uh, I'm joined by Rowena Murray. Good evening. And Paul Callahan. Hello. And I'm Vanessa Taholka. Thanks for being with us. I hope that you can hear us if I just like nudge these little things up. A little rusty on the panel here, a uh, little under the weather, so forgive my, my voice. Uh, but we are super stoked and I wouldn't be anywhere else this evening because... Tonight, we are asking a law lecturer, what should we know about children's rights and social media? It's a really hairy area, and I look forward to having an expert to help us unpick it. Plus, the Melbourne Fringe Festival is coming up. It's always a great time. But tonight, we speak with, one, with a couple of the people who are behind a new augmented reality experience, which will be premiering at the festival. It sounds amazing. We're going to try and do the almost impossible and Talk about um, an incredible, <laughs> you know, immersive AR type of experience on radio. But uh, from old media to new media, we do what we can. We'll paint a picture with words. That's that, what we're doing. That's right. That's <laughs> yes, cinema of the mind. All of that. All of that. I love yes. it. Uh, so, what's happening in news this week, guys? Uh, Lots of news uh, to get through. Uh, So first up, let's start with our mobile phones um, because Google have announced that Android 10 uh, is rolling out to Pixel phones um, from today. Uh, If you head over to their their blog, you can see a bunch of the features that they're they're focusing on in this new version. Um, Simpler, smarter and more helpful is how they're describing it. So things like Smart Reply, which is obviously coming across from Gmail. Um, There's a dark theme. Everyone's going dark we're all super excited about being able to change <laughs> our color scheme just like hackers in the 90s just like hackers yes. in the 90s it's like being back on myspace in 1993 <laughs> or something <laughs> um google are also responding to we we would assume to uh like a whole bunch of legislation and investigations and also apple sort of um uh, shouting in this area around new privacy and security features um, so things like only being able to share location data um, managing your notifications um, and introducing th- things around digital well-being um, so you can use those to track how much you're using your phone or how much your kids are using their phone. I do um, love those features. I think they're vital. It's yeah. sort of like, it always kind of feels like just yelling at my phone on a Sunday. It's like, you're not my mom <laughs> telling me how long I've been on the phone. I know how long I've been on it. It's fine. Close those circles, Paul. Yeah. <laughs> get, get those rings, get those rings done. Um, so yeah, and a whole bunch of other uh, features that, that they're rolling out. It's always an interesting time. They've also taken away from, uh, they're just going to numbers now away from desserts which feels like the most important thing um, to happen. They've literally matured out of but, their sweet tooth phase. Just like, now, <laughs> now we're just numbers. Now we're going to be good for you. We're focusing on the wellness and we can't talk about desserts <laughs> no, and no candy all the time. No more cakes yeah. for you. Um, and obviously this rolls into uh, what's coming next week, uh, which will be the new Apple event uh, on September 10th. Um, we're presumably a whole bunch of new phones that will be very expensive will get announced. Uh, new versions of iOS. Um, and interestingly, um, new versions of uh, Catalina as well. And one of the things that I, I was reading about uh, this week is that uh, the new version of the macOS is going to re- remove support for 32-bit applications. Um, and a lot of game developers suddenly gone, oh, this means that 
a whole bunch of things basically from 2006 sort of onwards aren't going to run um, unless the people who own those games go back and and change them. Um, and it's actually, this is a repeated thing that happens in games. You know, we sort of saw it with Flash and Flash being deprecated. Um, and I saw, I saw a bunch of conversations between game developers going, we now need to treat the Mac as a kind of a closed platform like a PlayStation or, or um, an Xbox because we can't predict what they're going to change or what they're going to take out. Um, but also like games that used to run on like Windows XP still run like microsoft are still supporting those ones so it's kind of it's an interesting thing that happens with you know it's supposed to make the experience better but for all these kind of developers and all these makers it's making it worse for them but there's pros and cons as well Mm. to to keeping things open because you know if you if you keep making uh it backwards compatible you know increasingly older software is vulnerable to to new sort of vulnerabilities and then there's no patches for it and so you end up in this risky weird edge Mm. niche space the long tail of uh of risky computer games. Yeah, sometimes <laughs> it's just ripping the old Band-Aid off and you're saying farewell to some of your favourites if they don't go ahead and patch up. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. What else is going on in news this week, right? Oh, right. Well, um, our oh, the stuff of nightmares really is the good old <laughs> deep fake. Um, we've been, you know, every everyone who's obviously got an interest in tech is seeing more and more of this, but... Um, Deepfake is getting more and more real and it's getting more and more creepy. So we've had um, another app get launched called Zhao. It's a Chinese face-swapping app that um, is actually sort of... It's the work of uh, um, Momo, which does a huge dating thing. And, oh, my goodness, I've hopped online and had a look at some of the examples. What it essentially is is... It's face swapping technology that is incredibly sophisticated and it works on video. So it's not just you leaning over your cat doing a quick still, you know, face swap, which just gives everyone the hoots. But this is, wow, you can, the theory is you can drop yourself into movies and be Leonardo DiCaprio in Titanic or Romeo and Juliet. Um, it's, it's great and it's a lot of fun, but it is just a really sharp reminder of how good the technology is getting. And now it's just being part of, um, um, you know, an app you can just download. This isn't sophisticated, difficult stuff to obtain or play in. So yeah, we've genuinely moved into the the risky tech supported yeah. uh, post truth world, mm-hmm. where just because someone's saying something on video, you know, you can't take that at face value anymore. Absolutely not, like literally. Mm. Yeah, yep. Mm-hmm. So it's very interesting times. Mm. Um, and the headline I read, which was just hilarious, was another realistic deep fake app goes viral before majorly creeping people out. Accurate. That's hitting every every BuzzFeed, you know, jargon word that's <laughs> necessary it? to be clickbait. <laughs> Amazing. Oh gosh. Anything else in the news category this evening? Or, um, so um, we want we we wanted to just very quickly touch on this and and flag that it, it was a topic that we were going to sort of explore and and probably a future show where we could give it the the um, the attention it deserved. Um, but video games have had uh, a real sort of series of Me Too moments um, coming out. A lot of quite senior, very powerful uh, people um, have had accusations levelled against them, um, and it's it's an incredibly complex and very sensitive issue um especially because as those international stories have have sort of played out it's it's come home and we're starting to see the same conversations happening and happening in australia um and in melbourne um and so we just wanted to acknowledge that um and and say like we we believe the people making these accusations and like we support them them coming forward with their stories um 
but like we also wanted to like find a way to more sensitively and like give it a much more detail in a future show um, but acknowledge it now Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app Thanks so much for being here, it means a lot we are very excited to have Cassandra Siri here with us tonight. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. So Cassandra is an associate lecturer with the Deakin Law School and she has recently done made a major submission to the United Nations on a topic that is really going to cut to the bone for a lot of parents. Um, social media posts about everything from a child's birth date or milestones right through to where they live, what they look like, where they go to school is becoming an emerging issue when it comes to protecting child's rights. So we're really interested to have a chat to you about that. Um, would you like to introduce a little bit about what, what it was all about? Um, so I guess this, this idea came from a very personal place. So I'm, I'm a mother of two young children. And when my first child was born, I was excited like everyone else and wanted to share it like everyone else. And I did. And after I'd done it, I sort of had this sort of feeling in my stomach and I was processing it for a while. And I thought, oh my God, what have I done? Mm-hmm. Um, and so from there, I, I decided to have a look into what the digital space actually means and what impacts that might have for my my kids. Yep. Um, and that led to this submission. So th- the idea around this submission was um, however well-intentioned we are, we're not thinking about the consequences that posting information about our children online will have for them both now and in the future when they become adults. It's incredibly timely because um, this is sort of the the children that are growing up now as the first generation that are on social media, this is a completely new space for parents, teenagers and and kids alike. And, um, you know, you're absolutely right that it's become immediately so normalised to share those moments. It's so natural to to do that. Um, You know, what areas of life do you think that the children might have negative experiences of, you know, from posting social, being posted on social media? Well, you know, what's it going to look like for them in 10 or 15 years' time? I think the hardest thing about that question is that there are so many unknowns mm. when it comes to the digital space. Um, you know, I don't think 10, 15 years ago we could have imagined that Facebook would look the way it does or Twitter looks the way it does. And I, I mean that in terms of its capabilities but also in terms of its liability. So we've seen, obviously, Cambridge Analytica. We've seen a lot of data breaches. Um, we've seen the growth of AI. Um, and so... That is, that is part of what this submission is about. It's about saying, look, there are things that we don't know and if that's the case, can we really be sure that what we're putting online is going to be safe for them? So how do we future plan? How do we sort of think through, okay, you know, uh, one of the things I talk about is two questions you need to ask. Who might be looking or searching or storing this information and for what purpose might they be doing it. Mm. Um, That's a lot to ask for parents who are really excited to share stuff about their kids. Mm. Um, You know, I think uh, we also tend to have – this is a really sensitive space and when you talk to parents about it, there is is a self-defensiveness that comes along with that because they aren't doing it out of a, you know, I want to abuse my child's rights. They want to share something. They're excited about it. Um, And so they start to feel really bad. When they're thinking, yeah. "Hey, this could be this could have a really negative impact," and all I wanted to do was, you know, share something about my child, and so I think we need to to stop thinking about it as, you know, as a judgment, and really kind of interrogate. Okay, well, 
what where might this information be used Mm -hmm. and if I can't guarantee that this isn't going to have a negative consequence then maybe I should find another way to do it we're having this very binary conversation at the moment where it's you know we share everything online or we just don't talk about our kids at all is sort of how it's becoming now (laughs) because sharing is so easy and accessible online and so it seems unreasonable to think that there's another solution but you know what we actually worked quite well when we were developing photos and showing them to our families prior to the development of social media so it's not an either or proposition it's about making sure that you're doing something that is going to be in your child's best interest rather than something you just think is really fun oh absolutely I love that you you mention, um, I guess, the parents making decisions and they tend to be very benevolent uh, decisions about sharing things with family and friends and what have you. But increasingly parents are asked by schools and other things where their kids have relationships like doctor's offices and whatever to put their children's information into databases that really um, don't let them opt out because they need to access a service. Um, how do you think uh, we're progressing in terms of the maturity and being able to assess those sort of situations? I think in terms of, you know, parents in the everyday, I think we're starting to become aware of that. We're starting to realise that I guess we sort of think, you know, the honeymoon phase with social media is starting to be over and we're thinking a bit more critically about that. And I think that's a really, really good thing. I don't think that social media in of itself is a bad thing. I just think that we need to be aware of its weaknesses. Um, And that also comes when you're dealing with services as well. So I actually had someone come up to me and say, you know, I really want my kid to play sport. Uh, But the organisation that arranges it says that I have to give this complete and unfettered licence, not only for, you know, the kid's photos, but also their names, their date of birth and their details. Otherwise, my kid can't play. And so we're we're dealing with a lot of organisations that are looking to have that unfettered licence to access, but we haven't really seen a regulatory or policy response to that as yet. And that's obviously where government comes into play. Mm. It's a really interesting one. Um, do we know much about what proportion of parents are posting photos and videos of their children on social media? Sorry, what was that? Um, do we know much about the proportion of parents that are actually posting photos and videos on social? Um, we, we are starting to see uh, more data about this. Part of the part of the, the difficulty of this space is that it has been a lack of data. So mm. we don't know a lot. Yeah. Um, but a number of studies are starting to be done and we're seeing that, uh, for example, I think a US study said that 92% of children are already being shown on the space. Yeah. Um, a study from the London School of Economics was saying that three out of four parents uh, are sharing about their children online. So from, from what we're getting at the moment, it's incredibly prevalent. And the degree to which you're sharing obviously varies quite a bit but one of the things I was noticing about that is that for example my friends who were always kind of uh, pretty sort of reluctant to put something online regularly are the same with their kids and the ones who wanted to post something all the time even when they probably shouldn't have um, (laughs) are, are doing the same with their children so I think even in that space that we're thinking about social media for our kids from our own personal point of view and not necessarily thinking about them when we're posting online. Yeah, that's a really interesting one because, um, you know, up until a child is 18, you know, theoretically and also legally and structurally in so many cases, the parent does have the say, the parent does have the legal right. Um, It's going to be a really interesting to see when these kids do turn 18 and whether they're going to have any success, for example, having their parents' social media channels It's the right to be forgotten all over again. Exactly. Mm. It's going to be a really, really interesting space. Um, 
Do you know if any of the platforms are leading on their approach to protect children's rights at the moment? I haven't heard anything that says mm. that they are leading in that space. To be, to be honest, I've actually heard the opposite. So Facebook, for example, um, is has a, a minimum age of 13 uh, for, for users for, to be able to you know put up a, um, an account. Um, and that's because the US legislation specifies that 13 is the base age. Um, but uh, Mark Zuckerberg has said that he doesn't think that 13 should be the base. There's already, you know, for example, there's already been the development of kids' messenger. Mm. So with parents' permission, kids between the ages of 6 and 13 can, you know, of course talk to each other online. Because yeah, uh, so you don't worried. need to go to school. Well, they're, no. so, they're so worried <laughs> about picking up that student audience because they know Absolutely. they've got an ageing user base. Yeah, mm-hmm. no, exactly right. Mm. And then they've also been developing educational tools and trying to get into schools that way. And so the whole yeah. idea from Facebook's point of view, if, if no one else, is that zero is the age we want to get them in straight away mm-hmm. um and i think i think there's cause for concern with that given this is a very unregulated instantaneous environment um and and kids are still developing at that age you know all, all the way through to teenagerhood oh very much so what sort of responsibilities would you like to see the social media platforms take on this um, I would I would like to see them be really proactive about this space. Um, we hear a lot of talk about, you know, responding to, you know, data breaches or whatnot, but we're not hearing a lot about, well, how do we make this a safe space? Um, I think that there is not a, a great opportunity for tech companies to really take this issue and run with it. So one of the things I was noticing, it seems really sort of odd, but it really struck me was, uh, I think it was about a year ago, I wanted to put something on the Facebook marketplace, you know, because they've got the market, they've got everything now. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, they were little charms with a charm bracelet. And one of the charms was an animal charm bracelet. It was a cow. And so I put it up and Facebook said, oh no, we can't, we can't put that up yet because that might be an animal and that's illegal. You can't sell the animal through the animal marketplace. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, fine. And it took like three days for them to go, Ooh. oh, okay, this isn't an actual animal. It's made out of silver. Um, <laughs> and I think that that's one, one area where Facebook's already been proactive mm. and shown that they can be proactive in that space. But we don't have anything that prompts you. So you're putting something up and it's like, is this your child? Do you have permission to put this picture up? you know, all of that sort of thing. And so really getting users to be proactive in how they're thinking about putting up social information. Or if there are things that have, you know, suburbs or anything, it's like, is this is this information that's going to reveal the identity of the mm. person in question? Yeah. They can be really proactive and that doesn't take a government to do. That's something that these companies can do on their own. And I would love to see that. Do you think that um, government should be, or anyone should be trying to push for like an agreement for them not to be creating a social graph on people who are underage? Uh, I I do. I do think that. I don't think it's appropriate. For example, um, Facebook has uh, it has um, non-user data collection. So they're collecting shadow profiles whether you're a user or not. Um, and parents and kids don't have a say about whether that's done. I think that's a huge problem, um, you know, and it's like, well, it might be really great. So, you know, my kids, you know, when they reach 13, God help them, um, can go, <laughs> oh, hey, here's my entire life online. I'd love to put that on my timeline. Um, I don't think that that's a necessary thing to do. Uh, you know, the kids don't need that, um, you know, and I don't think parents need that either. And so we really need to think about, you know, well, if they can't go into that space of their own accord, 
until a certain age, well, then that information shouldn't be available to anyone else either. The whole mm-hmm. idea behind the Convention on the Rights of the Child is to respect and protect and fulfil. And part of that is about empowering kids to decide when and if and how they want to enter that environment. So to a large extent, I don't think it's it's up to us to be able to make that decision for them until they're ready. Mm. And where does Australia sit in that is kind of leading the way on some of that regulation? Are we ahead? Are we behind? Is it not even on people's radar? Um, I think it's... That's a good question. I, look, I think this has been a, a very kind of neutral space in the, in, the, in the government space. We're talking about it a lot internationally, but that's usually in the context of, you know, did Russia interfere with the election or the Christchurch massacre in New Zealand and and it's through those major incidents that we're saying okay well there are some massive fallibilities when it comes to the online space um, but we're not thinking about that in the everyday yet yeah. at, at the government level I don't think we're not really thinking about that um, so I think part of what Australia can do is work as part of a global coalition so obviously um, the New Zealand Prime Minister worked to that effect following Christchurch I think there's other opportunities to work globally um, to implement things domestically that are going to protect children's rights. But because Facebook essentially is its own little kind of digital country, really, mm, yeah. um, there is probably going to need to be a global response in addition to that domestic response. Yeah. Is, there, is there anywhere that has best practice that you would sort of call out and say this is, they've figured it out, we should adopt that? I haven't found it yet, right. but that doesn't mean it doesn't exist. <laughs> I will be, I will be, um, I'll be hopeful about that. Yeah, hope um, springs eternal. <laughs> absolutely. Look, I think you know, I, th- I think we, we've had this sort of discussion about you know bricks and mortar corporations. You know, have you know are they doing the right thing? You know, not having you know corporate social responsibility, and then we've seen the growth of you know social enterprises and you know ethical enterprises. I think that there's room for that in the digital space as well. I don't think hope is lost, but I do think we need to have some. Uh, real direction uh, given and that comes at the grassroots levels that comes from the mums and the dads and the family members and the friends that use Facebook in addition to um, governments all gone. Yeah, well, that ties in um, really neatly with my next question. I was, you know, ask around what can parents do in the here and now um, to not only make wiser decisions on behalf of their kids while they're minors, um, but also guide their kids through it. Uh, you, you know, grassroots activism is a, you know, to put some frameworks around this is obviously a good start. But, um, you know, what would you like to see parents doing right here, right now to help improve this for their kids? That's a really good question. I think there are a couple of approaches that can be taken. I think, um, you know, working together, so coming together to actually, you know, lobby for change, I think that's a really good thing. Um, You know, but when it comes to the right here and now when you're in your home, I think there are a couple of things that need to happen. Um, I think we like to think that we're quite good when we're thinking about our privacy settings and, and so forth. But if we're honest with ourselves, is our digital literacy that sophisticated I would have to say the answer for most people is probably no and that's not a judgment that's just a reality yeah um so you know if you're going to be engaging with these platforms know how they work look at your privacy settings look at the terms and conditions when I read the terms and conditions of Facebook I was horrified I have to be honest yeah um and so know exactly how your information is going to be used and be distributed and how you can best guard against that if you are going to engage with that space. And, and that's just as an individual. Um, uh, when it comes to our kids, I think we need to be more cautious. Uh, I think we need to be really clear about knowing who is seeing the information, um, you know, where, where might that information be used. Um, and I also think that 
if I'm honest, I think at this stage I don't think there are enough protections available to be able to put that information up safely. So yeah. the rule in, in my house is no pictures of our kids um, on, on the online space because I can share them with my family and my friends in other ways. And so until I know that that, that is a safe environment to put that information up there, I've chosen not to do that. But, and, and I guess also it needs to be a conversation with your kids. So if your kids are old enough... Mm. to start thinking about these issues, then have a discussion with them. You know, it's, we tend to think about this stuff as, you know, things we do at children. Yeah. You know, we take care of children. We do things for children. Mm. But it's also about doing things with them, yes. you know, getting them involved in that conversation. We're, we're seeing so many things over the last few years about, you know, encouraging kids to be safe online and protecting, you know, their safety. But we're not actually getting them to really think about that in a, in a real level because we're too busy doing things for them before they can do it. Yeah, I think it's an absolutely fantastic introduction to teaching them digital literacy by getting them involved early in these kind of decisions. Absolutely. Yeah. And I guess also to to show them that this isn't necessarily 100% safe space, mm. you know, and so it's like if you're having those conversations, you're actually teaching them about that space in addition to giving them, the, you know, the rights that they are afforded. Absolutely. Know? It's so much to think about. Um, so we've been talking this evening to Cassandra Siri from um, Deakin Law School. Thank you so much for joining us on the show tonight. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. Triple R. We've just been joined in studio. Paul, would you like to do the honours? I will do. I will do the honours. Um, we're joined in the studio by Richard Cirillo. Have I got that right? Yeah, great. Well um, and look, Chloe, Chloe, have I got that right? You have. Oh, oh, I'm on fire. Amazing. Um, and they're from surveying firm Taylor's, uh, where Richard is a CEO and Luke is a web and graphic designer. Um, and they're here with us tonight to talk about Unity, which is an audacious building-sized augmented reality art installation that's been made in collaboration with the Melbourne artist Richard Payne. Um, and it's premiering at the Melbourne Fringe Festival. Richard and Luke, welcome to Byte. Thank you very much. Thanks, Thanks for having us. us. Um, so tell us about Unity. What is it? <laughs> Um, well, you described it quite well. So Unity is uh, an interactive augmented reality art piece um, that we've worked with uh, in collaboration with a local artist uh, as well as a local composer, Prabir Dutt. Um, and so it, it's sort of the, at the moment, it's the culmination of a few years' work that we've put into um, trying to find ways to get people more involved in community spaces um, and using... The, the data sets that we've been able to capture and the, the types of technology that we've worked on to help enhance those spaces and get people loving that space around them like we do. So what, like when you say data sets, like what, what do you mean? What's the detail of that? Well, we're a, um, a traditional land surveying firm and when people think about that, they think typically about people set up on the uh, side of the road with a, a tripod taking measurements um, that always looks like a dream job. Oh, yeah. <laughs> We're always Just measuring asked, things. Yeah, what are you, you, know, or what are, what are you taking a photograph of? Yeah, um, that's a, that's come a long way, um, particularly in the last ten years, five years, and, and down into the last few years, where we've become very much involved in uh, uh, lidar, uh, capturing capturing the uh, the real world. With uh, what does lidar stand for again? Light detection and ranging. Very nice. It's a very, very creative name. They could have done a lot better with that, couldn't they? <laughs> but it's a, it's essentially uh, spitting out millions of um, of laser shots, uh, uh, receiving a reflection, and being able to build up a digital copy of the real world, something that we call digital twin. Um, as, as it's something that uh, we've become um, developed quite an expertise in, we've been looking for 
better and better ways to be able to consume that data and that's what's led us down the virtual reality and augmented reality path. So, so as you've been doing these, these surveying projects, you're basically out there do, building these 3D maps of the world. So what was the point at which you thought maybe there's another story or maybe there's another thing that we can do with this data? Another element to our business is, um, is the creation of, of homes um, and land development um, and um, urban renewal projects. So uh, with our, um, big, our urban designers are uh, uh, creating urban uh, creating spaces of, uh, from within which that we're hoping to um, engage in a more meaningful way. So we saw this as an opportunity to bring both parts of our business together. So to start to, to think about it as a as a creative project. Um, so how do, how does that become an, an art project at Fringe? Um, well, that was kind of a it was a bit of a, a lucky event, really. We um, we had worked with the the artist Richard Payne uh, previously. We we brought him in when we started working or a little bit into our journey with virtual reality. Um, we brought him in and uh, met him through a, a, another business contact that we have, introduced him to the Vive because he had an interest in virtual reality art. Uh, and so he came and did a bit of a, an exhibition at one of our events um, to demonstrate the um, traditional art in this, in this new art form. Um, so then when we were looking at, we had captured this, this great data set of uh, the Art Centre precinct um, and we wanted to do something cool with it. And um, so Richard Cirillo uh, said to me, um, why don't we speak to Richard Payne and see if he's interested in doing something there? Um, and so once we did that, um, it all came together and it got a little bit it snowballed. We got the composer on board because we wanted to get some music in. So he's composed some pieces that um, the soundscape is different through different parts of the, uh, of the art form. Um, and then we thought, well, we've, we've gone all the way. We should probably approach the Art Centre and say, <laughs> would you guys like in on this? And so then it got carried away. And so what, what is the experience like of it? How, how, do you, how do you interact with it? How do you experience it? Like what, what do you do? Okay, so this is, this is created through... Um, we've, we've got the, the 3D digital art and we've brought that into augmented reality using a new platform that we've created called Aura Vista AR. Uh, and so the intent for this platform is for creatives and artists and 3D modelers and to be able to generate 3D artwork that they love, um, find a, a place in the world that they think it should belong... Um, and then they deliver those two things to us and then we can put it into the AR world for them so that anyone who has this app, when they're in that place, they can all experience it together. Oh, this uh, is something that William Gibson promised us in you know, novels <laughs> a decade ago. It's really exciting to hear that you've um, made these flights of fancy kind of come to life. Uh, something that I noticed in the description of, of your experience was that it sounded very large, like you're, you're doing a, a massive projection on a, on a building, um, so can you can you help me understand like how how people interact with something that's uh, so different in scale to us? Uh, one key uh, unique element to the um, Aura Vista AR app is that it's it's not triggered by an image; it's triggered by a location. So you can only see it if you are in that location and with your GPS on, um, and that that enables you to explore the art piece, which is is quite huge, 30, about 30 square metres, um, and um, be able to explore it from all angles, all directions, 
and also with the overlay of directional sound or position-based sound as well. I've got it, I've got it, because we're so used to thinking of art and particularly digital art as things that are being projected. You know, we've got our amazing Gertrude Street Projection Festival that happens all the time, but really you're talking about walking, you know, physically through a 3D world, like just, well... Walking like we do normally, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> through a three new world. Through a three new world. Come on, Paul, get on board. <laughs> um, and how have the how how did the art centre respond to this idea when you took it to them? Um, amazingly, they were really, really on board. At first, um, at first, I think they were excited about having. Um, some more art out in the uh, in the public lawn area there. Um, they had a lot of questions about the technology and seemed really excited about that. Um, but then I think once we got them um, in the app, once we turned it on for them, um, people just got lost in it, um, put the headphones on, they've got this wonderful music that's playing, they're walking through and each area is a bit of a different experience, which is all part of the um, the message of the art piece itself as well. Um, and so we lost them for about an hour as they walked around and um, everyone was doing the uh, Leaning Tower of Pisa, take a picture of me standing here. Fantastic. Um, so, yeah, it was, it was really um, it was amazing because our original goal was just to present it to them and, and say, hey, this is just something that we've done. Um, and then through that conversation, it was with them that they said, hey, we'd like to get you on board to do something like Fringe. And how has that transformed? How has that relationship impacted you know your business as as surveyors and obviously like maybe starting to think about technology like how are you starting to go maybe we're a different thing maybe we're a new thing look we definitely wanted to to um explore a different direction um and tap into our more creative side um the unique elements that we've got is being able to produce a digital copy of the real world which means we can make a great fabric for artists and creatives to come into and interact with so an art piece will only relate to the space that it's being created for. So the art piece uh, Unity works only at the green space at the at Art Centre Melbourne. Um, it, it responds to the topography, it responds to the landform, and it's directionally aligned to respond to the, um, the vista, the viewscape as well. It's brilliant. I love to hear um, these often indoor kind of experiences coming outside. AR gives us the opportunity to interact kind of with this duality, with the real world plus the virtual world, it could be very powerful. Um, I wonder when, you know, what sort of technical challenges did you come into? Because I think the user experience in these sort of things is is um, still being written, really. Yeah, it is. And it, there are still a lot of challenges that we, we continue to go through. Um, it's been a few years that we've been working on these sorts of technologies. Um, and I think it's only really been in the last year that we've been able to do something at this scale outdoors in a way that you would be comfortable presenting to people. Um, and so everything from uh, the geo-positioning using satellites because the GPS in people's phones isn't as precise as we would all like. Um, that's fine when you're trying to figure out where you are on the map. It's not so great when you're trying to make sure that where you're looking at is exactly the direction that you're looking at and where the building is. Um, so small challenges like that that um, compound upon each other when you start looking at the way that AR tracking works as well. Um, so it kind of this this one in particular because we have. Uh, worked on a few augmented reality things in the past. We've done um, some boutique things for clients. We've done some things for our developers, um, which some of them are image-based, so we work from a brochure, or some of them uh, work on a painting on a wall. And so they have very defined targets, um, whereas this one using the GPS location as well uh, really added that 
that into the mix. Everything from um, daylight, cloud cover, um, too many people on the ground, um, all of a sudden you lose, you, you lose your ground surface for tracking. So these are all things that we've had to work with. So how bespoke is this experience? Because uh, say, for example, when people are, are working with uh, topography in video games, they might look at um, iterative ways of dealing with the landscape and putting uh, items of interest out there for you know, their audience to, to interact with, for example. Um, but you know, when you're working with real-world spaces, you know, I, I wonder, did you, you know, have you been able to consider playing with those sort of ideas or have you had to be very bespoke? Um, for this one in particular, we chose to be quite bespoke. Um, it made sense that with this artist and being part partnered with the Art Centre and the National Gallery, it, um, something that's created specifically for that space, um, it, it wouldn't stop us from taking a similar scaled art piece and being able to, if we so choose or, or if um, a creator wanted, put it at any park of a, a particular size or scale. Um, so it... It can move and relate to different places if that was the way that we wanted. Um, and so it really depends on who the creator is and what sort of experience they're trying to create. And are you starting to think about the next <coughs> stage of those creators? Are you starting to like go out and have those conversations and, and think about what, what statements you want to make like as a company, but also like mm. which artists you want to support? Um, how are those conversations evolving? And also what's the impetus for for that what's the end goal like creatively and technically for for you guys oh, well, I, might, <laughs> I might talk about what the um the objective end goal is we would like to get as close as possible technically to be able to be um producing the ar art in as real time as close to real time as possible so we um you know our workflows are ev evolving to pull that time down now but i won't say it's quite it's real time <laughs> tap out a quick message and send it out there into the um, three-dimensional environment. But that's certainly, that's what we're chasing. Oh, that's amazing. The, is, that, is that everything from like LiDAR scanning to like objects in that space? And is any, that your end goal? That kind of any three-dimensional content. Right. Wow. In a world of deep fakes, that becomes very interesting. <laughs> <laughs> like just deep fake buildings yeah. everywhere. <laughs> yeah, populated with celebrities. Yeah, no biggie. We've... Um, We've discussed while we've been talking about all of, the, you know, the next step and where we go with it, the um, the choice of someone could be walking down the street and they see a LiDAR scan of a building and projected over that is um, the projection mapping like you've talked about before. Um, or it could just be as simple as uh, a couple are walking down the street and a message pops up on her phone that there's a new AR experience nearby and she sees, will you marry me, painted on the wall. Mm. Um, so anything as complex or as simple, um, a social experience, something where I might want to share something with just my closest friends or just my followers or with the public itself, um, being able to, to have that granular control and um, just people sharing it in the spaces around them rather than just digitally and also and also like moving away from that sort of high you know effort art project as well to this kind of much more immediate like almost social based content as well so thinking about it as a as a platform that's that's um that's it's kind of it's quite a big gap from like you know commissioned art to like someone having a message yes it is <laughs> <laughs> um so where can uh people experience unity uh, at the moment, so Unity will be appearing at Fringe Festival 
Uh, so from the 13th, 14th and 15th of September, we'll be on the lawn between the Arts Centre and Hamer Hall. Um, there will be people there wearing T-shirts to, to help guide people through it as well. But I imagine there will probably be a whole bunch of people walking around with phones and headphones on. Um, so it will be there to begin with. Uh, and then we are hoping that other artists or creators get in contact with us in a hurry and say that everyone is in a rush to, to create their own things and make their own little world. And can people download the app in preparation? Yes, yeah. So you can, uh, you'll be able to find the app either on our website or avistaar.com uh, or you can also find it on the artist's website, richardpain.com.au. So there's some examples of his art on there as well. And How do you spell Richard Payne's surname? What sort of pain? Uh, P-A-Y-N-E. Lovely, thank That's a good, you. An important question, actually. Very nice. And the other important question, uh, does it have a cost to take part in it, or is it a free no, event? No, so the, uh, the event is free, the app is free, and um, sending us art to, to put in a place for you is also free. Cool. Um, thank you so much for coming in and telling us about your project, Richard and Luke. Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Triple R's website or Bite Into It's Twitter or Facebook accounts.